The Pace Line is produced by The Cycling Independent, the only cycling media completely free of commercial influence. We are community-supported and dedicated to the whole of cycling. As our tagline says, if you ride bikes, you're one of us. From the Cycling Independent, this is The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. I'm Patrick Brady, and with me is my co-host, John Lewis. Each week, we take a look at how cycling fits in our lives. Um, so we continue to improve, yes? Oh, yes. My physical condition? Yeah. Yes. Awesome. You know, what I find is that my physical condition and my mental condition, right? Like if one of them improves, the other is surely to decline. <laughs> <You> know, <it's, laughs> I thought they're supposed to be in tandem together. If one improves, it pulls the other one along. They are. They are. That's oh. true. That's true. Um, it's worth saying for listeners that you know, normally we record this podcast within a day or two of it going live. But today we're almost a week in advance because I'm traveling all next week. And circumstances may not allow. So um, what's, what I, the reason I bring this up is because you are on the East Coast now. I mean, East in quotations. The other side of the Mississippi River. You're on, the, on my side of the Mississippi River and I will be in Seattle. Um, so I'll be taking up post just like my mental and physical states you and i also need to maintain a geographical balance <laughs> if i'm over here you need to be over there yeah i gotta get over there i yeah. i i think that is uh that contributes to a, a, a well-balanced world yes yes i think so yeah we got to keep the matrix aligned yes yeah um well uh let's jump into it uh what are you pulling on this week my poll this week is going to be a little different. Uh, I'm not going to go on a rant, as is my want. Uh, it's going to be more interactive, I hope. Hmm. Uh, so, so I'm going to be I'm going to pose some questions to you in a moment. But here oh, is the boy. Yes, yes. I'm going to avail readers of your expertise. I hope. Um, <laughs> so here's what I've been thinking about. There are a ton of people who got into mountain biking in the '90s, like I did. Mm -hmm. And and then they let life happen to them. Uh, and then they rocked up in their 40s, maybe, and decided, you know what? I need some exercise, and I used to really like mountain biking. Maybe they have, like, a, a an ancient 26-inch mountain bike in their garage, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, that's got some... It's got a rusted chain and some cobwebs on it, and they're mm. like, well, maybe... Maybe that's the bike, but then they got on it and they're like, wow, this doesn't, you know, this isn't great. Um, also, they check bit back in on mountain biking, having let it drift away from them, and they don't <laughs> recognize it anymore. Yeah, like, like, uh, like college tuition. Yeah, exactly. They don't recognize it anymore, much like college tuition, because it has become unrecognizable. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in the nineties, you could get a pretty fly mountain bike for 500 to a thousand bucks. True. Today, not so much. Not even. So, so people are coming back or thinking about coming back and it's a different sport entirely. 
Mm-hmm. Or maybe they've been roadies. This is kind of what happened to me. I rode mountain bikes real hard in the 90s, and then I went off and rode road bikes for a stretch of time. And then I was like, oh, I still love mountain bikes. And I kind of came back to it, and I was like, what? And, <laughs> like, what? Yeah. And so maybe they're blindsided by the financial barrier to entry. Uh, or the technology is beyond what they can readily understand Mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. today's bikes are so different than the mostly rigid short travel 26 inch bikes that they, uh, fell in love with it through. Yep. So today I just want to talk a little about how to buy your first mountain bike or your first mountain bike in a long time. I'm going to express some um, opinions, but I think my viewpoint is skewed by some prejudices that I'm hoping you'll help me correct. Uh, Well, we will know more soon. Yeah, my prejudices uh, are are born of two things. Number one, I, of course, came up riding hardtails, and I still ride a hardtail. And so I'm a little bit of a technological Luddite. Uh, mm-hmm. Although I do have a dual suspension mountain bike uh, now that I, I am excited about. Uh, and my second prejudice is that I live in New England, which where the mountain biking doesn't look a ton like it looks in other areas. But I'm so I'm going to look to you for course correction. OK. Uh, the first big question in my mind is what kind of mountain bike would, for example, would you suggest someone like coming back or getting their first mountain bike? Would you suggest a hardtail because it'll be most like what they knew before and also, and, or the least expensive, or would you suggest a not too aggressive full suspension bike because it will address the widest variety of terrain? Yes. A little column A, a little column B. A little um, column A, so maybe yeah. a hardtail or maybe? Definitely a hardtail or definitely a full suspension bike. <laughs> I'm sorry, I am, I am something less than hell. Okay, no, All right. I, I, this is a real answer, uh, and I'll, I'll tell you why. It really depends on where you live, okay? Um, yeah. I, uh, so I'm in Memphis right now. And I'd like to have a mountain bike here in Memphis. And at some point in this, you know, as yet undiscovered time ahead of me called the future, I will have a mountain bike here. And when that day comes, it'll be a hardtail. It will be a hardtail because Memphis is pretty flat. Um, the, the terrain never gets super chunky, rocky technical. And so you know, uh, flying around on a hardtail is pretty much the way to go. It is the best tool for this job. But uh, if you live in um, a place that has descents of more than, say, you know, three or four hundred feet vertically, um, get something with full suspension. Unless those descents are, are road bike smooth, uh, you know, um, you're going to have some bumpiness and whatnot. And to me, full suspension doesn't make sense until you've got longer descents. Because the thing about suspension is you need a certain amount of load on the suspension to make it do anything. 
Well, and that comes from, you know, mass and momentum and speed. Um, and without those, you know, if you're not doing, say, 20 miles an hour on a descent, a 130 millimeter bike is never really going to do a whole lot in the rear. Um, and so, yeah, if you live in a place that has, you know, big changes in elevation, um, you know, Colorado, California, uh, definitely, you know, big areas in New England, um, Pennsylvania, Virginia, North Carolina, parts of Tennessee, not this part, um, you know, but like not Mississippi, not Florida, not Louisiana. Um, and so I think that your that first choice is driven by where you live. Um, the, the one exception here is, you know, if you live in, uh, you know, say Eastern Colorado, but you're making regular treks to the front range buy the full suspension bike. So to summarize, if you live in a place, uh, that a glacier, uh, scraped across during the last ice age, a dual suspension bike, otherwise a hardtail. Yeah, uh, or, or if plate tectonics are causing the, the ground to rise up in thousands of feet. Sure, sure. Uh, yeah. A tectonic fault. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Okay, unless this person is of div diminutive stature, there's no reason to debate wheel size, is there? I don't think so. The, the, one, the one exception to that um, could be... Um, on trail systems like ones like I've got right here near me, where the trails um, look like a, a snake twisted up on itself, it's just super super twisty. Um, if if you're spending more time turning than going straight, um, then I might say yeah, twenty seven point five. But otherwise, just get the twenty nine er. Don't just get don't the twenty nine. Yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, I could. Just uh, one other word on, on wheel size. Uh, now being uh, particularly knowledgeable of Annadale State Park in Sonoma County, I kid about, I don't know why anyone who rode mountain bikes in the 80s or 90s there in Annadale on 26-inch wheel bikes with no suspension, I don't know why any of them still like mountain biking. I don't know how you survive in mountain biking long enough to get to the part where the bikes got good. Right. So those people impress the hell out of me. Yeah, they're great bike riders or masochists or, or both. both. Yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe one becomes the other. And and what about material? Is aluminum the obvious choice for an entry level mountain bike? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, unless you have the good fortune to you know know somebody like a you know uh, a CSIP or one of the other custom builders who will build you a nice frame out of steel. Um, you're probably buying, you know, it's, we're talking entry level here. So you, we're talking to one of the big manufacturers and the first easiest way to drop the cost is also the first easiest way to improve durability. Go aluminum. Sure, sure, sure. If, if, if you think you're going to be, there's a fair amount of, uh, a fair chance you'd be crashing, uh, aluminum would be a better choice than carbon. Well, I would I would also say that whether or not you think there's a fair chance of crashing, there's going to be crashing. <laughs> there's going to be crashing. So yes, you may not, you may think that you're going to be exempt from that, 
Um, and unless, you know, you're, I don't know, you know, Danny McCaskill's long lost uh, twin, I, I, you're going to go down some. Uh, you I mean, might not get I've hurt, seen, but. <laughs> I've seen a fair amount of Danny's uh, B, B roll uh, during <laughs> which he crashes as much as any of it, probably more than most of us. Uh, he, some of those crashes make me wonder how Danny McCaskill is still Danny McCaskill. I mean, like, I, how do you fall like that and think, I'm going to do more of that? Yeah. Well, I didn't get it that time. Maybe next time. Right, right. Yeah. You know, falling yeah. off the barrel of a tank. Yes. <laughs> dropping eight feet into just pure air. Uh, yeah. Well, he's not like you and me. No, um, yeah. how, how important do you think mountain bike fit is to the equation and on that note how big a deal is it to be able to test ride a new mountain bike uh both of those are are pretty big deals Uh, obviously mountain bike fit is not the same issue it is in road bikes and gravel bikes um but it's still a big deal um you know the the thing there is when you consider that your average mountain bike might come in five sizes, but that size range is meant to accommodate everything from like four feet, 10 inches to six foot a billion. Um, you know, there's, there's going to be a right size for most folks. I'm somebody who kind of fits a little bit into the bubble between medium and large, but because I've got uh, a spine that uh, has seen a thing or two, uh, I do better on larges. Um, and I avoid mediums, even though on paper, a medium's just fine. I just don't want to be that leaned over. So there's going to be a right size bike, and it's important to get that. Yeah, well, another thing I want to throw in here is that it's very much the style in current mountain bikes to have very wide handlebars. And uh, for smaller riders, that can become uh, an issue with shoulders collapsing Mm-hmm. Uh, in between. So if you're out there and you are looking for a new bike and you're under about, well, my height, five, nine, uh, you want to put a little thought into how wide you want your handlebars to be actually. Yeah. And, you know, fortunately, whether it's an aluminum or carbon bar, they can be cut down by a good shot. So that's yeah. something that's, uh, easily rectified. It's easily yeah. rectified. I think, I think a lot of people are going out of mount out of shops with, stock size bars though and not really addressing that so oh I just agreed. want to p- put it out there as a thing to actually address at the point of sale how, yeah. how wide should those handlebars be mm-hmm. um so uh, so we have a, a an aluminum 29er that's probably full suspension but might be a hardtail what what do you think a reasonable or low entry price is for a bike like that I know the $1,600, $1,800 territory offers some decent bikes. I haven't really looked. uh, I should have prepared for this had I known I I should prepare. Um, Or I would. uh, Moving right along. So I haven't looked a lot at what the entry level area is on this lately. Last I knew, you could actually get a functional bike for $1,800. I... especially with mountain bikes, but bikes in general, I've always advocated, and this goes back to the earlier question that you asked and I never got around to answering, um, test rides. Mm. 
I, I absolutely recommend test rides. I recommend as many test rides as you're willing to give time to. Go visit all the shops in town. Take out as many bikes uh, for test rides as you possibly can. Anything that they have in your size, and I do recommend avoiding test rides on bikes that are too big or too small. Um, that will really confuse things. But just doing more test rides, you'll begin to get a feel for, like, oh, this bike handles in a way that feels natural to me. Oh, this one feels kind of clunky. Oh, this one, whatever. But also what's going to happen is inevitably you're going to ride some bikes that are um, outside of what you think your price range is um, or maybe below what you think your price range is. And the key there is just to have those experiences. And I've always told people, um, and I did this a whole lot back when I worked retail, you know, buy the best bike that you can tell the difference in. So there comes a point where you, you reach diminishing returns in quality. Uh, you know, moving from the Diori bike to the Diori XT bike, some people don't see a difference in those two component lines. That's getting on up there, so not a great example for entry level. But there's going to come a point where a bike is so nice that you don't notice how much better it is than the less expensive bike you were just on. Well, buy that less expensive bike. As long as you can tell a difference in the quality, if you can support that financially, go up. Uh, mountain bikes uh, benefit from uh, uh, higher quality components in that it really makes a difference in how long they last. So having a bike that will stand up to being uh, dunked in mud, uh, you know, being rained on for four hours, that sort of thing, it, you know, makes a real difference. And so I, rather than recommending a, a starting price point, I, yeah. I recommend test ride and then find what really appeals to you. That may I think be that's more. Yeah. I think that's smart. I think everyone's, everyone's budget will be different. Um, and so that sort of relative advice of like, buy the best bike that you, you can tell uh, works best for you for the money that you feel comfortable spending. Yeah. Yeah. You know, appreciation is one of those funny things, you know, and when you're a new cyclist, there's going to come a point where it's like, Oh, that's plenty nice. Wow. Um, right. And three years from now, you're going to get on, you could get on that next more expensive bike and go, Oh, <laughs> uh, I get it now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think the key here is uh, to give yourself a chance to get back into the sport. Um, and that may mean spending less uh, mm -hmm. in order to feel like you're more free to uh, to enjoy your time on a certain bike before upgrading. Yeah. You know, and one other thing I will say on the subject of quality is that, you know, if you're only riding the bike, once a week, not four days a week, you can get away with spending a lot less. Um, you really sure. can. Um, but yeah, you know, it's important to weigh how many days a week you think you might actually go and be going out on your new bike. And um, the thing about a new bike is people usually start finding time that they can carve out of their week to go for additional rides. So be prepared for wanting to be on it more than you may have thought you would. 
Yeah, I would say that um, buying a bike and then within a year wanting to upgrade, that's kind of the problem you want to have. Yep. And, you know, to note um, market forces uh, playing in, in consumers' favor, um, selling a bike right now is yeah. not a bad way to go. Um, people are getting top dollar for used bikes. Um, so, yeah, uh, turning around and flipping that bike a year later is not going to be like uh, when you drive a Mercedes off the new car lot. Sure. Yeah, I think if you spent $2,000 on a new bike, uh, I'd just pick that number out of the air. But $2,000 uh, and you ride it for a year, uh, can you get $1,400, $1,500 for it uh, the following year, which you can then spend on the next level up bike? I think that's very reasonable. And then you're thinking more about, like, what is the cost to own this bike? Is it five, $600? Uh, and that's a pretty reasonable investment and a whole lot of fun, I think. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, something else I will mention, um, it used to be when I first got into the sport, you know, you'd buy a bike and it would have okay components on it. And then you would start replacing the rear derailleur. You'd try to do that before you broke it off. Um, <laughs> um, and then, you know, you might replace the shifters, you might put on a nicer saddle. Um, but you were starting with a, a bike where the bones of the bike, you know, was really good, probably not terribly different from some of the upper end models, but you, you do, you know, every couple of months, you do another little thing. That's not the way to go anymore. Um, because there are so many other little things that get upgrades as you move from one component package to another, the frames get nicer, the suspension gets better. Like the stanchions get better coatings so that they move more easily. Um, they might have better pivots, you know, actual bearings instead of bushings. So there are all sorts of things that get upgraded when you go from the $2,000 bike to the $3,000 bike uh, or the $3,000 bike to the $5,000 bike. It's, it's not something you want to try to improve upon a la carte. Um, and, you know, and then there's just the amount of money you're going to spend in labor because of all the internal routing and things like that. So... Yeah, maybe bye focus bye. on the things you can do yourself, uh, change from the the stock grips to the ones with the tassels. Yeah. Uh, that's 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 one I, one I recommend to people. Yep, yep, spooky dokies. Yep, 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 yep that's yep. right. Um, yeah, extra reflectors. Yeah. If if uh, if listeners out there have questions about this, like they find themselves themselves in this position, like maybe you were a roadie for a long time and then you bought a gravel bike and you got out on the trails and you were like, well, trails are great. And now I want to maybe become a mountain biker. Uh, dump the questions in comments because I think there's a lot of uh, there's fertile territory here. Yeah, there really is. Uh, I, I got to say, one of the best things for my cycling in the last 15 years was getting back into mountain biking. Um, Same. Gosh, it, it's been 11 years now because I went like 15 years only riding road bikes and cyclocross bikes. There were no gravel bikes yet. Right. Yeah. yeah. I did a similar thing. I think um, just after the year 2000, I think I, I got into road biking and I just did that, did that, did that. And then I, you know, I, I kind of remembered, oh yeah, I really loved mountain biking. And I had this exact experience where I, I went and looked at mountain bikes and I was like, holy, holy crow, I can't mm -hmm. do this sport. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, I, you know, I was lucky that uh, Specialized was flipping one of their demo fleets. And I didn't need, you know, that year's bike. Last year's bike was just fine. And uh, so I, I bought a bike that had been used a pretty fair amount, but was still in really good shape. And I was only riding it, you know, one day a week or something. Um, and that was a great re-entry for me. I, I got a nicer bike than I would have had I been paying, you know, shop retail. This, this um, year's retail, right? Yeah. Um, you know, and so um, dropping a little less to get a, a better bike used was a good, good move for me. And it taught me in a hurry that I no longer knew what I was doing. Right. So, right. Uh, anyone who does choose to do this, uh, I'm going to encourage them to be kind to their skill set. Um, if you used to be a mountain biker and have stopped being a mountain biker and are, and are about to become a mountain biker again, um, there's going to be a comeuppance uh, in terms <laughs> of skills. And, uh, it will it will surprise and it will disappoint and it will pass. Yeah. 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 You're a bike rider. You'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah. All righty. Uh, well, let's take a break and uh, we'll come back in a minute or so. Sounds good. The Pace Line is brought to you by the Cycling Independent. We are the only online cycling publication that's entirely reader supported with absolutely no advertiser, sponsor, or investor commitments influencing our editorial. We don't have a sales team or middle management. It's just the three founders and a collection of talented and committed contributors who independently produce our content. To maintain our commitment to honest, reader-focused editorial with the best writers in the business, we need your help. Every dollar that comes in goes directly toward creating the content you see. A subscription is cheap, easy, and it goes a heck of a long way. Just go to cyclingindependent.com, click on support TCI, and choose your level. Thanks for listening. Okay, we're back with the Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. Time for your poll. What have you got this week? Well, as it turns out, my poll this week will be a little different as well. Uh, longtime listeners of the Pace Line will recognize this sound. It's the sound on the bell of the collar of my cat, Yogi. He would often jump up in my lap as I recorded. So there are previous episodes where I say, hello, Yogi. Um, when he hears me talking, uh, talking while I'm seated, he knows it's lap time. Fair territory. Um, or mm, he did know. Um, I had to put him to sleep yesterday. He was 16 and cancer took him in less than a month. In the two weeks I was gone back in California, he lost 40% of his body weight. Um, I'm not going to spend my time talking about Yogi, if only because I don't have enough damn Kleenex to record a show of me blubbering. What I want to talk about instead is just how awesome it is to come home from a ride and be greeted by an animal. When my boys were little, I'd occasionally be greeted with a hug at the door, but my boys are, well, a boys, and mostly into whatever they are doing. So these days, when I walk in, hi is about the lot of it. Yogi was different. Uh, very often, he wanted me to hold him. 
we had this thing where he would run up my leg. I would lean back a little bit and he would run up my leg and chest and then just hang himself over my shoulder. And I would support his back legs with my arm. He was fond of using my chin as a salt lick. Um, the competition, competition between his raspy tongue and my stubble would sometimes give off sparks. Um, <laughs> I've known plenty of dogs who would start at their master's knees, particularly the backside of the knees for some reason, and then work their way up and down, getting all the salt and mm, most of the road grind. Uh, I did once have to keep a friend's dog from licking my legs because I was wearing a warming imbrication. Um, uh, speaking of fireworks, I think that would have caused some and uh, maybe uh, challenged a friendship along the way. Um, the other part of coming home to an animal is if, you know, say it's a weekend, you sit down on the couch after a shower um, and you know, just so often they don't miss that chance to snuggle up. If you're one of those poor people who has to take your dog for a run before relaxing, like I used to do with my Siberian Husky, I feel for you. Yogi made no such demands of me. I would get my shower, a bite to eat, and then I'd relax on the couch. And I very often barely had time enough to even pull a blanket over my legs before he was up on top of my legs, judging just where he was going to settle in. He, he was not patient. Once I was on the couch, um, like it was time for him to settle in. And, uh, it, yeah, it was just funny. He, he was, there was nothing else in his life. He was so impatient about, you know, like, come on, get on with the blanket. So I, I, I got to lay down here. Um, also Yogi was not a sloppy cat. Um, I was deliberate and choosy. Um, uh, sorry, he, uh, was very deliberate and very choosy about where he relaxed on me. Um, I, you know, it's funny. I had him more, more than three years before the first time he chose to actually climb into my lap. He, <laughs> he was not a cat you picked up and put in your lap before he decided he liked your lap. Um, that was on his own time you know, his own criteria, whatever. Uh, it took him that long, truly three years to decide I was not only good enough to live with, which he had decided inside of five minutes. Um, but after much consideration, I was good enough to climb into his, uh, into my lap. Yeah. Um, it was, yeah, yeah. He, he spent so little time deciding that I was his person but so much more time deciding, yeah, I'm, I'm a hit that. Um, <laughs> I'm, you know, and I'm not even sure why this is, but my experience is that a post-ride nap accompanied by a pet or child is a substantially better nap. Like the quality of the sleep goes up by, you know, a full hundred percent. Um, Waking up briefly to feel his heft on my legs was truly better than a weighted blanket. Um, it was the reassurance I needed to go back to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I worked it. Um, John, you've, you've been a dog guy, and it's been a while since I've had a dog. So what about being greeted by a pet have I left on the table? Um, I mean, you know, at root, just having anyone glad that I walked back in the house is pretty nice. <laughs> well, yeah, and, yeah. 
and Django is the is the only one really who's uh, uh, not nonplussed. Um, so uh, there's that. Uh, Django often um, he's not really satisfied unless he can lick my face. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I am salty. Uh, he's a face licker anyway. Um, but this actually works out for me because I, I'm always going to make a cup of coffee. This is foreshadowing, by the way, but I'm always going to make a cup of coffee before I get in the shower. So if I get the dog face lick, then I pretty much have to, like, you know, splash water on my face because it's gross. All non-pet people out there were definitely, like, barfing in their own mouths when you were talking about having your being cleaned by an animal yeah. after your ride. But, um... I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I, I think about it all the time. I don't know why the furry the furry buddies uh, are such a big influence in our lives. I think I think actually having close nonverbal relationships is tremendously powerful. Um, and I'll just leave it there. You know, yeah, I, I think you may be right about that. Um, I, I think that may be uh, part part of the appeal is just how powerful that is to um, yeah. Human relationships are complicated. Pet relationships are not. This is, this is true. This is very true. And, uh, yeah, I'm going to miss that. Yeah. Yeah. The straightforwardness of, of a pet's love is pretty awesome. Yeah. Alrighty. I think it would be good to move on to the paceline picks. That sounds good. That sounds good. So, uh, foreshadowing arrives, uh, at shadowing, um, this week I'm picking two coffees. I'm going to be, when people are listening to this, I will be in either Seattle or Portland. Uh, this, so this week I'm picking two coffees. I have alluded on previous podcasts to my love for Kaveri coffee, uh, which is my daily brew. Kaveri is run by my friend Tanya, uh, uh who lives in the East Bay. Uh, it like is the California Indian- East Bay? The California East Bay, that's right. Oh, all right. Uh, um, it is Indian coffee, which hardly shows up here in the States, but India has a long history with coffee growing, and Tanya is a first-class roaster. Mm. She does single-source coffees with a few different roast and flavor profiles, and they are all amazing. If you're going to sit down and enjoy a cup of coffee, I, this isn't like a on-the-run thing. Like, don't put Kaveri in, in a travel mug. Uh, don't do that. Um, but I highly recommend it. It's pricey at 18 bucks a pound, but single-source small roaster coffees are sort of all, all in that range. Um, and as I used to say back in the day, you have to pay money for good drugs. <laughs> I'm uh, also yeah. picking this week Cometeer Coffee. Uh, Cometeer is a small company north of Boston who has a really interesting sim- single cup coffee program. So Cometeer isn't a roaster. Okay. They, they have developed a, uh, concentration and freezing process. So basically they ship you boxes of high end coffees frozen into concentrate in these aluminum pods. Mm. Um, the first thing to know is the coffee is great. I was skeptical. My nephew got this for me uh, for Christmas because uh, he knows I love coffee. I was skeptical of the concentrate and the thawing processes, but because you just run some hot water 
uh, like hot tap water over the pod to loosen the frozen coffee inside. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you drop it into a cup and pour hot water or cold water over the top. Uh, and the flavor is incredible. Like, I don't know what they've done to preserve it, but it's great. I also really like that the pods and all the packaging are recyclable. Oh, okay. Okay. So I have avoided single cup coffee brewing for a long time because there is, there's so much waste in the process, you know, yeah. like, uh, K cups, you get all these like plastic, mm -hmm. like, I don't want to make a plastic, a nightmare every time I make a cup of coffee, but Cometeer sort of solved that. And they signed up a bunch of roasters with good reputations like George Howell, who is sort of the godfather of um, high-end coffee. Uh, he got started here in Boston with a company called Coffee Connection, uh, which was later sort of copied by a call, small uh, company called Starbucks. Uh, <laughs> Counterculture is another one of their roasters. The coffee's really, really good. And I know I already said that. Um, <laughs> The other reason I bring up Cometeer is that for me, it's the perfect, easy post-ride coffee because I'm tired and I don't want to make a whole pot and I don't want to mess with a conventional pour over. You just, you know, pull it out of the freezer whenever you're ready, goes under the tap, a little boiling water, you're done. Coffee made. Um, huh. Comet, go ahead. No, I, I'm just, I, this is fascinating. No, I, I yeah, wish yeah, I liked it's, coffee. Yeah, I, I wish you did too. I'd send you some. Uh, so their basic package is $48, and that gets you 32 cups of coffee. Again, it's a pricey cup of home coffee at a buck fifty a pop. But the quality and convenience and recyclability uh, for me more than justify that price. So there it is, cycling podcast listeners. Uh, <laughs> two, two good coffee recommendations. Hmm. That's really neat. Um, yeah, I, I, I got to ask about the name of the second brand, Cometeer, what they make yes. comets, they ride comets, they. It, well, I think because the coffee is frozen like a comet and it comes shipped to you. Oh, okay. That's, okay. that's my take on why they call it that. And what's funny is I was out doing errands this morning and I stopped by a friend's house and there was a Cometeer box on their front steps because because I was thinking after I thought this 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 pickup I was like should I really be talking about coffee on a cycling podcast and then I saw the box and I was like you know there's the omen uh obviously this is the stuff. Well one of my original co-hosts Michael Hotton uh he talked about coffee quite regularly. So, ah. yeah, this is, this is not fresh territory for the pace line. Oh, oh good. I'll try yeah. to keep it cycling uh, related. But for you coffee drinkers, uh, Kaveri uh, and Kamatir, get after it. All righty. Um, well, normally the pace line pick is meant to be something we've actually used, like mm, drinking coffee. Um, yeah. <laughs> used to the point of investigation or investigation to the point of review. Um, that's not the case for my pick this time. My pick is the Ergon CF All-Road Pro Carbon Seat Post. Um, and I'm picking this even though I haven't ridden it because I rode and reviewed its predecessor. Um, the All-Road Seat Post is worth reviewing and I plan to review it in time. Um, and that's because it has a truly unique uh, design among seat posts. It's based on a leaf spring. Um, the seat post has a front half and a rear half that connect to the seat post head. 
and the design allows the seat post head to move fore and aft slightly. Um, in their video, they say up to 20 millimeters. Um, I don't think I would want to hit the bump that would result in 20 <laughs> millimeters of movement. Um, and it's neat. I mean, when you slide the post down into the seat tube, what is sliding down there are two kind of D-shaped sections that make, you know, a circle when laid together. Um, right. But as it rises, they, they get more and more slender until they look like leaf springs. Um, and so, yeah, I had the predecessor to this and just loved it. I, I never talked about, like, suspension. You know, I never talked about actual movement. But the thing is, it just made the ride gentler. Um, riding on, you know, gravel roads, um, anything really bumpy, it took some of the sting out. Um, uh, and it was, you know, it was firm enough that, you know, there are suspension seat posts now where you're pedaling along and you, you, you hit a bump and you can feel the seat drop and you can feel your relative saddle height change. You never got that with this. Um, and for a lot of us who have spent years and years on the road, anything that messes with your sense of saddle height is generally really unsettling. I don't like mm. that at all. Um, no. And so this doesn't do that. Um, so they, you know, their copy by and large just says that it absorbs shock and vibration. Um, so while this design is new, you know, um, I can... I can conclude with some uh, confidence that the way they've made the leaf spring sections longer and thinner, um, it'll make a difference. It will definitely make a difference. Um, my confidence in being able to recommend this is, you know, again, based on the fact that I rode the original for a couple of years. Um, <clears throat> the all road seat post should be available soon. Uh, it doesn't seem to be quite available just yet. Um, their pricing says it's 249 euro. Um, so I expect that it will probably be around $299 once it hits the States. Um, but they, even when you choose North America, it still says euro in, in pricing. So not really sure about that just yet. There will be a link to their site in our show notes. Cool. What yeah. bike would you mount that on? Um, a gravel bike? Yeah, yeah. I mean, in terms of uh, what I have in my stable right now, I've got two different gravel bikes. Um, one takes its own proprietary kind of D-shaped seat post, um, and the other I've got a dropper post on. So I would end up just putting this on a road bike meant for some um, less than paved roads. So probably sure. my Danucci. Um, but yeah, uh, seat post designs are getting funkier and funkier, and I am not always super in favor of that. Um, I'm generally speaking against proprietary shapes, mm -hmm. um, you know, that lock you into certain systems. That's just not my jam. The other comment that I would make on your pick this week, uh, I, I own and enjoy many Ergon products. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to suggest to the Ergons, if you're out there listening, and to any other bike company uh, representative who might be listening, that we have to stop using the word pro in our in our products <laughs> names. I know what you're trying to do. I know what you're trying to say, but look, nothing I'm doing out there is very pro. Yeah. Um 
You're, yep. you're not, you're not getting across the message you think you are. You're just well, making me feel bad about myself. I mean, the bigger problem is that like everything is pronouns. So like, what, what's the good stuff? What does it even mean? Yeah. 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 And the, the name of this product also, you know, let, let's go back and, uh, and review. Okay. The CF all road pro carbon seat post. Yeah. What does the CF stand for other than carbon fiber? Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, this is, again, I'll say to all cycling company, uh, representatives within earshot, think of syllables. Like you think of your marketing budget, don't waste them. You know, brevity is the soul of wit. Yeah. Ergon all road carbon seat posts. There you did it. That's still a lot of syllables, but you cut out like, uh, like 11. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is, this is rampant territory for the, the great, uh, comedy troupe fire sign theater to rip on. They were the ones who had the line, the department of redundancy department. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. absolutely. You know, another thing that Patrick and I can offer as a service is just send over all of your product names and we'll take the red pen to them and send them back. That. That sounds like, yeah, that found, that sounds like a fun sideline. I mean, that's like a, a genuinely a fun Friday night for me. Yeah, yeah. We work cheap. So call well, us up. And we also don't know a good time when it hits us in the face. <laughs> that's right. All right. That's a wrap on another episode of The Pace Line. Uh, you know, before we go, I'd like to put in a plug for RKP's other podcasts, Revolting, which is a cycling podcast that isn't really about cycling. Um, and I like that about it, uh, with John and Steve Knievel of All Hail the Black Market, um, as well as Enter the Deuce, which is even less about cycling and is more about the miracle that is modern medicine. Um, there will be another episode of that up soon, finally. Uh, we're hoping that you do like them, and if you do, please subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And if we aren't listed in a place you like to get podcasts, let us know in the comments where you'd like us to appear. Uh, there are now more outlets out there than there are channels on cable. Send us some questions, people. We, lo we love that. It's enjoyable. Uh, if you've got an idea, please drop by the Cycling Independent and put a suggestion in the comments. We hope you've enjoyed the show, and if you have, again, please leave us a good review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It makes us easier for other listeners to find. Until next week, I'm Patrick Brady with John Lewis. Thanks for listening to The Pace Line.